This week on Rotten or Righteous Mash and Sackcloth, we have a very important announcement. For the Jewish members of the camp, there'll be a Yom Kippur service following Sunday Mass. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Rotten or Righteous, the podcast that's like a 52-week-old fetus. We're really late. With me today... <laughs> Can you imagine the pain that the mother would be in at 12 weeks late? <laughs> that's why I said it was really late. I'm glad that got you, Scott. Three-month-old baby in your belly. You know, I really don't think this that hard on the uh, introductions, because normally whatever comes to me is, is funny enough to make the cut. Yeah, but I, I, I did, mean, that's good. I did workshop that one in my head, and because the original version was the only podcast that's not like a premature baby. We're late. Oh, yeah, that wouldn't be good. I mean, I don't think it would be any worse, but I think yeah. the, the 12-week-old or uh, late fetus, it's funnier. Uh, We're like with, an elephant. We've got a long gestation time. With me today, as always, he's like an elephant. He has a long gestation time. He's Scott Judge. <laughs> Snork. And me, well, I'm sorry we're doing this, and I'm Zach Geiler. Scott, I have two stories for you that awesome. happened in quick succession, and they both have things in common. Okay. Uh, the first one comes to us from the New York Post, and this was posted just two hours ago, so this is hot news. Ooh, ooh. And the, hot off the presses. And the, the headline reads, Florida Man... Hunting for flying discs in Gatorfield Lake found dismembered. <laughs> no. He was hunting for what? Flying discs. I think frisbees. Ah, okay. But still, go ahead. The body of a Florida man who ventured into an alligator-infested lake in search of flying discs, was missing three limbs when recovered by authorities, according to a report. Sean Thomas McGinnis, 47, was found dismembered on May 31st at Taylor Lake in Largo, where he frequently waded into the water to retrieve wayward flying discs from a nearby disc golf course to resell, cops told Spectrum Bay News 9. 
When Sean McGinnis was recovered last week, he was observed to be missing three limbs. Largo police spokesman, Which- or spokeswoman Megan Santo told the outlet. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> <laughs> no! No! That's horrible. That, just, just that is like, so mean. It's <laughs> not right. I just like how they mentioned twice in this story, which is only three sentences long, that he was missing three limbs. Oh, because, and this is so stupid, but do you know the only thing I want to know? Which limb made it? I don't know. None of them. I think he was I mean, dead. Well, yeah, but I mean, he had a, a limb still intact. Oh. All right, and uh, our second story, which is also from today, 20 hours ago. Uh-huh. Uh, no, not even 20 hours ago. It said 20 hours on, on, on Google, but really this was published June 10th today at 9 a.m. by CBS Miami. And the title of this one is Florida Man Bitten by Alligator He Mistook for a Dog on a Leash. <laughs> you deserved it. Must have thought that was one of them weird uh, uh, wiener dogs. Right. Um, listen to this story. This dude is from Palm Beach. Uh, a man in southwest Florida is recovering after he was bitten in the leg by an alligator. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission says the seven-foot gator bit a chunk out of the man's leg outside of a motel late Tuesday night. The 49-year-old victim says it was dark out and he mistook the gator for a dog on a long leash. A witness says he ran outside and saw deputies surrounding the gator. Quote, and we had this sergeant. He jumped in the middle of the back of that gator, folded him up, and taped him up into a ball, said the witness. The victim was taken to the hospital and is doing okay. Deputies believe the gator came from a drain near the motel. End of story. <laughs> I've got so many questions. Well, it was one of, you know, how many times have you come across one of those seven-foot-long dogs on a leash and think, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to pet that. How drunk do you have to be to confuse an alligator for a dog? Well, more than that, I'm just, I don't care if it's a dog or an alligator or a cat. Anything that is seven feet long, I'm not going to touch, period. Ugh. You know how uh, seven feet is big? Yeah, like Shaq, I wouldn't touch him. Right, definitely He's seven not Shaq. Foot long. Because if you touch Shaq, he'll try to sell you a Papa John's pizza, and nobody wins in I that know. situation. That's what I'm saying. Yao Ming, nope, not doing it. He'll try to sell the big you show? a Panda Express. Yes, now, the big show's different, because he, he'll just give you tickets to SmackDown, and that's always fun. SmackDown is fun. Uh, I tried to watch... Been to SmackDown, been to Raw. I tried to watch some wrestling with my boy. Yeah? He used to love watching wrestling with me. He just didn't have any... Didn't have any uh, want or desire to participate in my Friday Night SmackDown viewing. Joel got like that too. He was like, "Why would I want to watch a bunch of greasy men touching each other?" And I had nothing to him. I mean, what are you going to tell him? I mean, that's a great argument. <laughs> yeah, I had no, I had no defense. 
Now, I, I don't think that was Joseph's problem. Uh, I think he was just... He's gotten into Legos, and they won't let him go. It's like crack for kids. Yep. They're expensive. You have to take two jobs in order to afford it. And they take up all of your child's time. You'll need to take him up to the... Uh... Where's the Lego capital of the world? Is that in Chicago? Nope, that would be in, I think, Denmark. All Denmark? Yeah. I think there's something in Chicago, though. You yeah, guys there's have a to couple make a buildings, I think. There's a road or two. Two or three up there, yeah. There's the, the bulls are up there. And the burrs? You know, I tried running with the bulls. They just told me to get off the Did court. <laughs> All right. This week, we have two fresh, hot, steaming piles of mash that we're going to discuss. <laughs> hot, steaming piles of mash. I mean... <laughs> I don't know why I find that so funny. I hope you're hungry, because there's two big old mm. hot, steaming piles of it. Yeah. Mm. We are done with season one. This week is our first foray into season two. And I do want to say just at the top is that there is a marketably uh, improvement in overall quality between season one and season two. The two episodes that we saw this week might be better than any of the previous season's episodes. Yeah, they're pretty good. They're pretty as, good. As of right now, I think the first episode of season two is my favorite right now. Mm-hmm. It was it was just it was really good. But let's get into talking about it. The first episode of season two is called Divided We Stand. General Clayton is worried of the pressures of working so close to the front and the toll that it's taking on the staff of the former... of the former... (laughs) (laughs) Well, technically, it's 2022. That's not wrong. That's true. That's true. Of the former 4077th. And sends the psychiatrist, uh, or a psychiatrist, Captain Hildebrand, played by, I assume, a Nazi propaganda poster come to life, Anthony Holland. That would make sense. This dude has the prettiest blue eyes I've ever seen in a human being. But he looks terrifying. Yeah. He looks like if an elf on the shelf doll gained sentience. And was hit by a hot steaming pile of mash. He looks like an elf from Lord of the Rings survived a house fire, but not without severe scarring. (laughs) He's not a good-looking man. He looks like Mike TV from Willy Wonka, survived the taffy puller, and was pretty good in getting all of his his body uh, proportions right, except for the ears. For some reason, Wonka just left those pulled. Survived the taffy puller. He looks... I'm done. I don't have any more. In this opening scene, though, there is something that that 
General Clayton says that kind of blows my mind a little bit because he says only the 4077th MASH unit is having adverse effects of the war. That is a bold and blanket statement. And a bold-faced lie. Never mind all the people that are actually on the front line. Yep. It's the one that's at the surgical hospitals. They're the one that's suffering. No, don't. I'm sure they are, but it, I don't think anybody really won in Korea. You know, whenever we bring up America's victories and how we've never lost a war, for some reason Korea and Vietnam just get kind of glazed over. Yeah, we don't. We don't talk about those. Well, first well, we, we are up back to back World War champions. Well, of course we are. Boy. <laughs> now Henry is the only one who's told of Hildebrand's real mission to ob- observe the 4077th to see if it should be kept together near the front lines or broken up. And so he has a a deep desire to make sure that the 4077th is at least seen as a good uh, mash unit to this psychiatrist. I want to know when psychiatrist Sidney comes on board, because he's one of my favorite characters, and I'm so glad that Captain Hildebrand is not Sidney. Yeah, uh, Sigmund was one of my favorites. He was good. Now, even though he is sworn to secrecy, Henry then goes and tells everybody what's going on. Because that's the mark of a true military leader. One that immediately disobeys orders and tells everybody everywhere what's happening. That happens a lot in this show. Yeah, you'd think. Now, he first tells Hawkeye and Trapper to kind of watch themselves, because, to be fair, they are the ones that have facilitated and and encouraged General Clayton to send the psychiatrist down. But he also knows who reported him to Clayton, and that would be Ferret Face himself and Miss Margaret Hotlips Houlihan. Now, before he does go and confront him, I will say that I'm a little bit jealous of Frank because he is currently in Hot Lips' tent having his hair washed. And I gotta say, Scott, I don't think there's a better feeling in the world than having your hair hair washed. washed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Go go get your hair done, especially by a girl that's got a little bit of fingernails. She can get it in there and scratch that scalp. Get your hair did. Oh, man. Having a great time. And, uh... He uh, So Henry goes and confronts Frank and Margaret in her tent about the reports and uh, for being the cause of all of this and reminds them that if the camp breaks up, they would probably be separated as well. Wouldn't be able to practice medicine together, quote unquote. Now we did have a, a little bit of a, a clip show-esque vibe to this episode. So when Frank is trying to explain to Henry why he reported the camp, uh, they did flash to one of the pranks that made me laugh. Uh, Frank is reading his Bible, and he goes, Hey, who changed the Ten Commandments? <laughs> I don't know why, but that sounds like a good prank. I'm, I'm not mad at that. <laughs> now, as Henry leaves Frank and Margaret's tent, Hildebrand does overhear Henry and Radar talking. So, Hildebrand immediately knows that his cover's been blown. They know, he, he knows that the the, the MASH unit knows why he's there. 
Now, things are okay at first, um, with Hawkeye and Trapper pretending they like Frank, but doing so with a dollop of sarcasm. And, you know, Henry's laughing nervously. And or eventually, eventually the, the cracks begin to show. And it just breaks down with Hawkeye and Trapper and Margaret and Frank and Henry all in his office screaming at each other. And so, Hildebrand says the inevitable that he thinks that he's going to recommend that they uh, break up the mash. But his thoughts are interrupted by Radar, who announces that choppers are coming. And the doctors immediately stop fighting with each other, snap into action, burst out of Henry's office, and goes to the OR, and they all start doing their best work. Now, I... I, I one of the, go ahead. One of the best oiled machines in existence. When it's time to get busy. One, like I said, season two steps it up, I think, on the comedy. You can tell that the cameras were better. Uh, they have different uh, angles that they're shooting. But one thing that they also stepped up, it seemed, is the, the gruesomeness of war. Because during mm -hmm. one of these OR scenes, uh, a young man who is brought in on a stretcher, his body is smoking from phosphorus burns. And they asked why you didn't put him out before you got him to the mash. And they said they did, but the wind from the helicopter ignited his body again. That was the first time in this show that I had to like pause and go, that, that's really, really gross. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of, that's difficult to, difficult to listen to, to see, to think about. So Hildebrand goes to the OR and he's absolutely disgusted by what he sees, the blood and the gore. But. He does notice that Trapper and Hawkeye and Frank and Margaret and everyone else is working together to help these young soldiers. Later, Clayton arrives to get Hildebrand's report, and they all find Hildebrand in the swamp, drinking heavily. And Hildebrand admits that while the members of the 4077th are indeed... Uh, mentally unwell, it would be crazier to break them up. And so the general seems to accept Hildebrand's evaluation, and everyone has a drink to toast the decision to not break up the camp. Which, you know, I was really worried about it, too, when I first saw this at first. I was like, oh man, I can't believe, is MASH going to survive this? And then I realized there's 400 billion other episodes. <laughs> what, they get what are we going to do for a podcast, Zach? Watch a this could be the end. No, it won't. Uh, <laughs> now, I did take some notes that we can go through here. Um, then when Henry um, confronts Frank and Hot Lips for the first time over them reporting back to General Clayton, Frank manages to button his shirt to Hot Lips. Like Hot Lips' shirt button is in Frank's buttonhole. And so they're attached. And so that was pretty good. When... Hildebrand is being introduced to Hawkeye and Trapper for the first time. Uh, Trapper asks the the shrink if he has a speciality to which or, or to which Henry says gynecology, 
at the same time that Hildebrand is saying that he is an ENT, an ear, nose, and throat doctor. And Hawkeye goes, well, you were close, Henry. That was... It's <laughs> a solid joke. Ah, good stuff, good stuff. And one last thing that I wrote down is uh, the PA announced that for the Jewish members of the camp, there'll be a Yom Kippur service following Sunday Mass, <laughs> which... <laughs> <laughs> that was a solid joke. <laughs> good stuff. So this this is one of your favorite ones so far. Yeah, I really enjoyed this one. It made me laugh more than uh, I think. Yeah. Any of the previous ones? Not that the previous ones weren't funny. It was just this one made me laugh more. It was just, good. It was just, good. Just like the next one made me laugh as well. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have anything else to say about that. The mass unit's going to stay together. Frank yep. will continue to be terrorized. Henry won't know what's going on. Not a whole lot's going to change. Man, we're so good at transitions. Hello and welcome back. I hope you had time to go to the bathroom. Or if you're like me, you're listening to this on the bathroom. In season two... <laughs> <laughs> on a pile of hot steaming mash. Right. <laughs> I'm still laughing about that. Now this has a... The season two, episode two uh, show has a lot uh, on the on the good old mash.fandom. Uh, page, so we should probably just dive into it. It's Jump called, into it. It's called one of my nicknames from high school, Five O'Clock Charlie. <laughs> Preach on, ring banger. The episode opens with the 4077th. Just absolutely giddy with anticipation at the arrival of Five O'Clock Charlie. Five O'Clock Charlie is a North Korean pilot who is probably the most inept and inaccurate bomber pilot in history. He flies over the camp the same exact time every day at two o'clock, which why he's called Five O'Clock, I don't know. Hence the name. <laughs> Stupid. Nah, he flies over he flies over at five. I'm sorry for lying. Um that's why he's called Five O'Clock Charlie. He flies over the camp. He drops one bomb in a pathetic attempt to destroy the nearby ammunition dump at the 4077. Why there's a big stockpile of ammunition at a mash, we don't know. But don't worry, there won't be for long. But <laughs> Charlie's aim is absolutely terrible. He always misses. So, no one at the 4077 is particularly worried, but they do all run out to see Charlie make his bombing run, and, and they place bets on where his bomb will land. They grid it off the area. Now, everyone is, is excited about Charlie. That is, except for Major Frank Burns and Margaret Hotlips Houlihan, who are both... Calm down, Mash.Fandom. 
the same this is the same website, Scott, that we have made fun of for typos for the past twelve weeks. And now they're gonna mm-hmm. use words like apoplectic. It says, everyone that is except Major Frank Burns and Margaret Hotlips Houlihan, who are both apoplectic over everyone else's lack of seriousness. Uh, Please forgive me, dear listeners. I'm going to have to go ahead and give that one a goog. Yeah. Apoplectic? 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 I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. It's such a dumb word. Why would you use that word? I think it's where you put a soda drink in an electrical outlet. Apoplectic. This seems to be how you pronounce it. Apoplectic. Or apoplectic. <laughs> but it is... <laughs> ah, it's a French word! <laughs> Must be Italian. Uh, it means overcome with anger, furious. And then it gives the, the description. Uh, Mark was apoplectic with rage at the decision. And then the second definition, which I would like to say is is probably the most helpful definition I've ever read in my life, is uh, number two, relating or denoting apoplexy. Hmm. Which apparently is an old word for a stroke. Radar takes bets from the camp on where the bomb will land each day. And it turns out the latest attack uh, came, and, and, and Henry won. He won almost $100. And so he's busy counting up his money, his winnings, when Frank demands that he calls General Clayton. Now, before we get into that, I do want to say that one of the funnier lines uh, in the series so far takes place right before uh, Henry wins. You see, Hawkeye and, and Trapper at the swamp with the new dentist... A man by the name of Cordoza. Whether or not he appears again, I do not know. But Cordoza is there. And he's playing his guitar. And um, they're playing poker. And and Hawkeye asks, um, Cordoza, do you want a drink? Cordoza responds, when I left for war, I promised my girl two things. No drink, no women. So pour me a plug, but make it a small one, because I got a date later. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, nothing like that's what he said nothing like adultery to really just put a smile on your face brighten 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 the show so we're back Uh, frank just won a little apoplectic yeah personally uh uh, yeah personally personally i'm a personal apoplectic person um so we're back in Henry's office. Whoops. So we're back in Henry's office. Henry just won. Frank comes in. He's like, hey, we need to call General Clayton. And before he knows it, Frank makes Henry requisition a 40 millimeter anti-aircraft gun for the 4077 to fight off the enemy. You know, my favorite part of the whole show was when he had that upside down. He was talking to General Clayton. And he's like, I need an 04WWNUG. What is an 04WWNUG? And then he turns it upside down. He's like, oh, God. <laughs> but he gets that, that 40 millimeter anti-aircraft gun for the 407 7th. And again, Hawkeye and Trapper don't like this idea. 
Now, General Clayton decides to make himself a series regular, apparently, because he's now shown up in two episodes in a row. Uh, and he decides to visit the camp and check out the situation for himself. Initially, he does not believe that the 4077th needs a gun. He's even placed a bet on Charlie himself. And Hawkeye and Trapper are relieved until 5 o'clock Charlie gets a lucky shot and drops a bomb right on Clayton's Jeep. So now the 4077th are definitely getting this gun. Now Frank is put in charge of this gun, and so he's able to create his own little platoon consisting of three South Korean soldiers. See, and I just said the Nug was my favorite scene. It's not. It's not. The The next one is. Oh, it's when Hawkeye and Trapper, who's dressed as MacArthur in shorts, all, <laughs> yeah. all yeah. pretend to make a platoon of their own along with Radar. Just to just to irritate him. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you what's sad. There's no way, and maybe you can. I can't. How they how they like marched down to where Frank was. They did the about phase. One of them was going forward. One of them was marching backwards. And this is, the whole scene was absolutely hilarious. It was, it was a good one. Now Cordoza, in between cheating on his wife, does provide some helpful uh, information. He, he gives them the idea that you want to get rid of the gun, you get rid of the ammo dump. Because if there's no ammo dump, then Charlie's not going to be attacking the camp every day. So, the next day, Hawkeye and Trapper, after working through the night, by preparing Charlie for the run of his life, uh, gets ready. Now, what they have done is made giant red or white arrows made up of bed sheets from the supply pointing to the ammo dump. And then they painted a giant target over the ammo dump, thinking that there is no way in the world that this guy could possibly miss. It's a lot of mercurochrome. Mercurochrome. Comb. You know what I'm saying. No, I don't. And I don't care. Uh, the next... <laughs> so... Love you, Zachy. So, to give Charlie the chance to actually throw his bomb and not get blown out of the side by Frank, they change the clocks in the uh, post-op room, so Frank believes that it's 4.30 and not 5 o'clock. What Frank catches on, because he hears Charlie coming in low, he hurries outside to fire at Charlie. However, Hawkeye and Trapper keep yelling out different random numbers that confuse Frank's soldiers. Because they're trying to, to lock in this this anti-aircraft gun on the right beveling and the right, uh, uh, you know, trajectory and whatnot. And so, when they fire, uh, they or by the time they get the gun set, uh, uh, Charlie's long gone. But that doesn't stop Frank from firing his 40 millimeter anti-aircraft gun, except somehow. The mis-aimed gun does not shoot at Charlie or even near Charlie. It's just somehow it is just pointed directly at the camp's ammo dump, destroying it. I, that, that Boom! Made, but that made no sense to me. I, I refuse to believe that the random numbers that Hawkeye and, and, and Trapper were shouting out were actually the correct coordinates to the ammo mm -hmm. dump so that they would fire and hit it. But that's what happened. It was an on, it's all an accident. So, 
With the ammo dump gone, so is the need for the gun, and so is Five O'Clock Charlie, who Hawkeye and Trapper admit to sort of missing. And then the episode ends with Hawkeye asking Trapper, or Hawkeye asking Frank rather, a, a question. He says, "Tell the truth, Frank. Don't you miss Charlie?" Oh, I forgot you did. And that made me laugh. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. So it you turns... know two ahead, very sorry. good episodes. Two very good episodes this week. They were both really fun. There is a running gag that I'm glad that they put into the research notes and fun facts because I forgot to write it down. And that mm-hmm. is uh throughout the episode, Hawkeye and Trapper repeatedly steal Frank's sidearm and replace it with mm-hmm. different things. The first time it was with a water gun, the second time was with a staple gun, the third time was with a toilet plunger. Which was it was the tiniest toilet plunger you've ever seen. I would not use this toilet plunger if my life depended on it. It was so small. It wasn't gonna do anything. But Hawkeye does shout, Atta boy, Frank, flush him out of the sky. And the fourth time it's a toy pistol that when it is fired has a pennant that reads bang, like it's straight out of a, a Looney Tune cartoon. Ah, <laughs> oh, good stuff. But it turns out that this episode apparently was inspired by a real-life event. A, uh, or the exploits of 5 o'clock Charlie are loosely based on the flights of bed-check Charlies, which was also my nickname in high school. A obsolete North Korean biplane, which made nighttime raids on UN targets. In World War II, U.S. Marines experienced a similar, or a similar operation mounted by the Japanese, which they also called Bed Check Charlies and Washing Machine Charlies, because why not? The original Bed Check Charlies were Russians. Or, or, the original Bed Check Charlies were Russian-made uh, Polikarpov, sure, uh, PO2 biplanes, probably one of the most produced aircraft in the world, with more than 40,000 having been manufactured. Although obsolete by the time of the Korean War, they still proved useful. Flying at night and made of fabric and wood, they were difficult to pick up on radar and flew too slow for fast jet fighters to intercept them. One F-94 jet night fighter even crashed, trying to slow down to attack one. Most of the time, the bed check Charlie raids did little damage, but they were a form of psychological warfare, as they served to keep UN troops on alert and deprive them of sleep. The plane used in this episode is Orion PT-22, painted with North Korean markings. According to Wikipedia, this aircraft was owned by Don Burkett, who described his experience on the October 1972 edition of Private Pilot magazine. Don Burkett flew the aircraft himself during the filming. Looking closely at the aft seat of the aircraft, a gray lump can be seen, which is probably him flying the aircraft while crouched out of view of the camera. Hmm. And what's really fun little extra bit, Zach? Well, I know, and it's uh, it's weird that they used your nickname from high school, Gray Lump. Gray Lump. <laughs> Which, by the way, I've got a gray shirt on today. By the way, folks, and that's been the color of shots or <laughs> the 
Color is Scott's Shirt, our fav- famous brand new recurring segment, where Scott will reveal to you at some point in the episode what color shirt he's wearing. What will it be next Little. week, folks? Will it be pink, maybe? Maybe white? Off-white? Who knows? Stay tuned for next week's... Hey, Scott, what color shirt you wearing? <laughs> I tell you right now, unless I go shopping, it won't be pink. Oh. oh man! Yeah, too- that looks like a flesh-colored shirt with hair all over it. Uh, you know, we have to wear we have to wear mm-hmm. uniforms now at camp this year, so I can't wear any yep. of my fun shirts. I was going to buy one of those shirts that look like you're not wearing a shirt. Yep, or your sun's out, guns out shirt. Mm-hmm. It's fine. It's probably because I was wearing showing too much cleavage. Last year, yeah, so. probably you and your man boobs. Well, listen, it's a gift that God blessed me with, and it's a gift that I want to share with the world. <laughs> but does God want you sharing your gift with the world, Zach? Hey, listen, because I'll tell you one thing that those... I do know for sure, for absolute yeah. certainty, that that story that I just said, that I just made up on the spot, uh, mm-hmm. did not make your day or anyone else's day any better <laughs> at all you are not blessed by that you are not blessed you're not blessed you're not blessed we've got stories to make you feel better you're not blessed but, it's a horrible thing to say but at least your day's better than it was on July 10th, 1994. Good night, everybody. Mm. <laughs> 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 Please join us next week. Oh, and how old were you on July 10th in 1994? I was three. I was One. 23. And of course, this reading comes from. Uh, this reading comes from Michael Farquhar's uh, book, "Bad Days in History: A Gleefully Grim Chronicle of Misfortune, Mayhem, and Misery for Every Day of the Year." On July tenth, nineteen ninety-four, it says, "One of the essential jobs of a spokesperson is to maintain, at all cost, the message an organization once conveyed." But as tens of thousands of ethnic Tutsis were being systematically slaughtered by rival Hutus in the African nation of Rwanda, U.S. State Department spokeswoman Christine Shelley demonstrated through awkward bureaucratic doublespeak just how difficult it was to spin genocide. Here is Shelley's exchange with Reuters, or with Reuters correspondent Alan Elsner at a press conference held on June 10th, 1994. Elsner, how would you describe the uh, events taking place in Rwanda? Shelley, based on the evidence we have seen from observations on the ground, we have every reason to believe that acts of genocide had or have occurred in Rwanda. Elsner, what's the difference between acts of genocide and genocide? Shelley, well, I think the... As you know, there's a legal definition of the... Clearly not all of the killings that have taken place in Rwanda are killings to which you might apply that label. But 
As to the distinctions between the words, we're trying to call what we have so far as best as we can. And based again on the evidence, we have every reason to believe that acts of genocide have occurred. Elsner. How many acts of genocide does it take to make genocide? Shelley. Alan, that's just not a question that I'm in a position to answer. Wow. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> you talk about getting a question that you could answer, but for whatever reason, you're just not going to. Class. Must have sent the class.